Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, where is this? Hello. Hey, how you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. It's a Sunday episode. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. I hope you're okay. Are you okay? Leila Kalamuich is my guest. She has a new book out on Sandorf Passage in translation. It is called Call Me Esteban. The translation is done by Jennifer Zobel. Call Me Esteban is a very moving depiction of life in pre- and post-war Sarajevo. Call Me Esteban deals with memory and loss and identity, and my conversation with Leila Kalamuich marks the third time in the past year or so that I've talked with an author from Bosnia-Herzegovina, and it's been an education for me. I feel like this is like a trilogy now. I had a nice time meeting her and speaking with her from uh, her home in Sarajevo. That conversation is coming up in just a minute. If you hear in my voice more energy than you normally do, I don't know if this is any different. I'm trying to be a little bit more energetic because I was talking to my mother over the holidays, and my mom has recently (laughs) started listening to the show, and she was telling me that I need to pep it up a little bit. I don't know if that's something that you guys have noticed. I don't want to go overboard. I feel like I used to yell. I don't listen to this show very much myself. I used to listen to it a lot to try to get better, but I've kind of gotten past that. I don't listen to myself. It's hard to listen to yourself. But if I listen to old episodes from many years ago, I often feel like I was yelling. So, I don't know. I hope I haven't sounded lethargic. I'm just trying not to be grating. And speaking of being grating, I just want to say one small thing 
because it's been gnawing at me for the past few days, about Betty White, the late, great Betty White, who died on New Year's Eve just over a week ago. And I I just want to talk about the notion of being universally beloved because that's the way that she's often characterized, and I find it fascinating. She was not grading Betty White. She didn't grade on anybody, did she? She was this rare cultural figure who causes, or you know, still causes in people, unanimity, right? Everybody likes her is the kind of catchphrase. She wasn't controversial. She didn't piss anybody off that I know of. And I loved her, right? I mean, everybody loved Betty White. What, what was not to like? She was a foul-mouthed elderly woman whose shtick was that she was super horny. <laughs> uh, and you could tell that she was a good person, had a good heart, right? She exuded that. So no uh, qualms from me on that front. I am in agreement with the general consensus. But what I find interesting about it is the fact that she had this late life, like very late life period, where her fame seemed to accelerate, you know, over the past 20 years. And I think part of it was actuarial in nature. Everybody could kind of understand that she wasn't going to be around forever. And there was a kind of preemptive mourning going on. But then I cannot help but think about social media and the way that so much of her fame and public, uh, what's the word for it? Like so much of her public audience was chattering about her on social media. And I think about this concept of being universally beloved, not controversial, that you don't piss anybody off. That kind of celebrity is, according to the dictates of social media, the pinnacle of achievement. And I think there's something ironic about it because Betty White wasn't really on social media all that much, to the best of my knowledge. I don't think she was out there tweeting a bunch. But she managed to find this sweet spot in the culture where everybody thought she was okay. And I think that's how everybody hopes to be received or most people hope to be received on social media because as we all know if you're not okay people <laughs> people will let you know it and so then I start thinking about other figures in the culture who embody this same sort of thing and it's like who is it like, like Dolly Parton Willie Nelson maybe to a bit of a lesser extent And then I started thinking to myself, well, is this something that you really should want to aspire to, where you don't piss anybody off, you're non-controversial, you're universally beloved? I don't know. I don't know. But I just, I posit, I'm just offering this up here as food for thought because it's been on my mind and I have not reached any conclusions. I'm hoping somebody, this is what I do. I have these sort of like half formed ideas in my head and then I share them on the show in this monologue. And I'm just hoping that somebody out there with more time and energy than I have is going to take it and run with it and write a very thoughtfully crafted think piece. 
about it so that I can uh, have my thoughts clarified via the labor of somebody else. I want to say some more thank yous quickly to folks who have pre-ordered my new novel. I don't know if you're aware, but my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, is now available for pre-order. It is coming out in May of this year. And you can pre-order it at bradlisty.com or at any online retailer, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, whatever. And so with this in mind, all throughout this spring, this winter and this spring, I'm going to be doing this thing where if you pre-order my book and you send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase, I will write you a note and send you an other people's sticker in the mail, and I'll give you a shout-out on this program. So I want to thank the following people for pre-ordering my book. Scott Potasnik, Patrick Hart, Vij Patal, Jodine Spire, Elena Sanchez, Soon Wiley, Rachel Newcomb, Stefan Schumacher, Ryan Stankovich, Mindy Humphrey, Patrick O'Flaherty, and Chase Parnell. Thank you guys. I appreciate you pre-ordering the novel. It will arrive uh, in your mailbox in May. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So my guest, again, is Leila Kalamuich. Her new work of autofiction, Call Me Esteban, is available from Sandorf Passage. And I was saying earlier that I've talked with other authors from Bosnia-Herzegovina in recent times. And before I forget, those two authors are Vesna Maric and Lana Bastasic. So if you want to check out those episodes and do the full Bosnia and Herzegovina trilogy, you can listen to uh, my conversations there. But today it's Leila Kalamuic and Call Me Esteban, which received the Ido Budisa Literary Award and was the Bosnian Herzegovinian nominee for European for the European Union Prize in Literature 
This was back in 2016 when it came out in its native tongue. And now we have a translation in English uh, by Jennifer Zobel. And it's a really powerful book and a very moving book and a very moving life story, which you're going to hear Layla and I talk about right now. Here she is, folks. This is Layla Kalamuich, and her new book, One More Time, is called Call Me Esteban. For me, they are stories. Uh, all of them, they are linked. So they are linked stories, but the book is about my life, so it is out of fiction. And it's one of the, it's one of the sadder books that I've read in recent memory. Like, I found myself close to tears a couple of times. Like, you've been through quite a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, the past was not so easy because it's not only about uh, losing a mother. It's also about me growing up in 80s and then the war during 90s. So many, many things happened in this region. Yeah. But I think that I have some kind of light at the end. So, <laughs> yeah, the, the, um, I, I also can say that there are sad stories, but I think the last one, it has the happy end. <laughs> right, right. And you know what? That, like I should say, too, that as sad as the book was for me at times, there were also really sweet moments in it as well. And at least some relief you know there were there were moments of relief for you that i felt excited by because i was like my god it, whatever like whatever string of bad luck has been following you it needs to end <laughs> you know like i felt i felt uh almost like i wanted to defend you because you've been through such a great lot and for people listening um i think it's important to sort of start at the beginning you lost your mother when you were two is that correct yes uh, I was two years old when she passed away. It was really so sudden because she died when she was 22 years old. She had a heart attack and it was just boom. <laughs> so, But for me, she was always some kind of a story because I have no memory of her. Uh, with two years old, uh, now I'm thinking... I, I don't even remember her voice, her face, or anything. But through her parents and through her, through parents of my father, she was uh, part of my uh, childhood. But maybe that's what I'm. Uh, I I tried to say in first story. Uh, she was really always some kind of a story for me. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if you lose a parent that young, the only thing that you know of them is what is told to you by those who do have memories of her. And you said that she died of a heart attack at 22? Did she have like a heart yes. defect? Like what what happened? No, she was she was healthy, but it was so sudden. And in the 80s they didn't do some kind of autopsy or something. Uh maybe she had some problems with heart, but she didn't know about it. So it was really, really, it was almost like a car accident or something because it was not expected at all. But it happened like that. And she was, was she 
like exerting herself? Do you know what I'm saying? Was she exercising or something, or was she just? No, there were eighties here. People didn't work that much. She worked in a police office. She was typewriter, and she had this that, that regular job, you know. And okay, beside her job, she had me. But she, my grandmothers helped her a lot, so. I don't think that she was uh, exhausted or something like that. But I, 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 I just she mean, had, I, I mean, though, like when she died, was she moving? Like, was, would, did she do something to stress her heart? You know what I'm saying? Was she exercising or what, what happened when she passed uh, away? Or was she just... Yeah, she died during the night. That's what they told me. She she died during the night, and uh, two of us we were alone in the room, because my father was out in that time. In uh, he had this sleepover uh, with uh, in in the house of his parents, so we were alone that night. And uh, she was sitting on the sofa and smoking. <laughs> and uh, actually, they found me tomorrow because her father. Uh, was worried that she didn't show up at work. They worked in, at the same uh, institution. It was a police uh, station before the war, and she didn't show up in the morning. He tried to call her, but she didn't answer, and then he he just showed up in front of the apartment, and he knocked, nobody opened, and he broke the, the door. And you were inside with your mother. I was inside, yes. So you. But uh, yeah, they, they told me like that. I really don't have any memory of that evening. Okay. Were you awake when you? I mean, your grandfather broke the door yes. down. I imagine. Yes. So you must. You must have been two years old, and you must have, like, discovered your mother dead in the room with you. Probably. I don't know. Would I understand it in that way? Uh, but we were in the same room. I don't know how many hours I was awake while she was dead. But grandfather, he told me that uh, he hear me crying in the, when he show, showed up at the door. So that was the case. But I, I, I really don't remember anything right. about that. Only what they told me. Wow, that is so sad. And... Uh, you were then raised by your grandparents. There's Grandma Brana, Grandpa yes. Boro, Nana Safeta, Papa Nejad. Is that the right pronunciation? Yes. Yes. And then your father, who in his grief, it sounds like, fell into alcoholism. Is that right? Yes. Yes. But yeah, uh, Brana and Boro, they were my parent, my mother parents, and uh, Nejad and Safeta, they were my father's parents. My father, in that time, he he was only 24. He was also very young. And when that happened, so after that, yes, he had these phases of alcoholism. And that, that is something I can remember. You kind of, I think the way that you describe him is that he was sometimes there, but not always. We, we lived in the same house, but uh, he was uh, oftenly out in the bar after the work, and 
we we lived in the same house, but he wasn't present that much in my daily life because I was really I was raised by his parents. We 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 lived then with them, and I spent every weekend with my mother parents. So it turned out that um, they uh, he he somehow he knew that I am safe, that I'm in good hands, we can say. So he, uh, he after the work, ma- many time he he spent in the bars during the evening, sometimes during the night. So he was sometimes here, sometimes not. Did you have a good relationship with him? Now, yes. Okay. Now, it's a different story now. Now he's... He's much older, and uh, he, now I have my stepsister and brother, and they live also in Sarajevo, and uh, we are in contact. So now things are between us are much better. But there were some times when I was really mad with him, and uh, it wasn't easy. But now. I think everything is okay. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So you are growing up in what the former Yugoslavia and mm-hmm. forgive me I you you have to realize I have spent the entire morning trying to read up on the history of the former Yugoslavia and the war in the Balkans in the 90s because my knowledge of world history and like uh, global affairs is shamefully not as good as it should be so I've been trying to read up on the history and to make sure that I'm oriented but feel free to correct me if I get anything wrong you are growing up in the former Yugoslavia. You are without your mother. Your father is drinking too much. And like you said, he was 24. He was almost a child himself, uh, you know, by today's standards anyways. And your grandparents are helping to raise you. And, the, you know, your mother's parents have lost a child. So they themselves are in grief. And you have to have a sense if your grandparents are your primary caregivers that they themselves are old and, or at least at some point it's going to dawn on you as a child that your grandparents are older and are not going to be around for a long time. Um, you know, uh, actuarially speaking. So when you were a kid, did you begin to have fear around losing your grandparents? Mm, 
Yes, and it was also before the war, during the 80s, because uh, uh, I was born in 1980, and uh, I lived in the last decade of former Yugoslavia. And it was really happy time here for most of the people. But I had, I now, when I look from a distance, I can see that I was, uh, that I had anxiety as a child. But in that time, uh, people didn't talk much about it. Because I was good in, at, in, I was good at school, I was, uh, uh, always playing with another kid, so they didn't, didn't recognize something that would be a bigger problem. But I had those fears about losing them. Uh, I don't know, because you said you don't know much about uh, history of Yugoslavia. I remember myself, uh, I was watching news all the time during my uh, Childhood. I remember when the war in Iraq started. I remember uh, when fall of the Berlin Wall. I remember Ceausescu <laughs> fall in Romania because maybe some, uh, maybe a part of it because uh, they were always watching news, and I was around them. But I was really interested in those things, and I had those questions about meaning of life of that. I, uh, it, I kept that, uh, especially, I can. I think that we can see it in the stories that I'm somehow obsessed with losing and uh, dying and uh, that kind of things uh, are really present in my writing. I think that all of that started uh, when I was a child. How could it not? Yeah. I mean, if you if you if you grew up to write a book about anything other than trauma and loss, I would be baffled. It's of course you're going to write about it, and I think that one of the things that this book underscored for me is the mis kind of the mysterious way that trauma can work on a person. Like you talk, for example, about being an anxious child, and yet the adults in your world didn't really know it. They didn't see it. Or if they did, they didn't say anything. That to me feels like an outgrowth of the trauma that you went through, losing your mother, and then the the shared trauma that was felt by the adults around you, your father, your grandparents. So when you look back and you think about your anxiety as a child, were there ways that it was manifesting? Were you having panic attacks or... Were you afraid of the dark or, you know what I'm saying? Like, how did the anxiety manifest in your life? Uh, I didn't have panic attack. I got them much, uh, no, maybe in 20s. Because I, if I had one or two, I don't remember. But I had uh, many fears from dark, from... Maybe sometimes I had uh, bad dreams. I, I was always wondering uh, if people are really happy. Those kind of things. Because it was, but it was only one part of my life. From the other side, I was a really happy child. 
I was good at school. I had many friends. I was really active. I spent a lot of time on the street with my friends. So it was balanced. It wasn't that I was some uh, child who don't speak, who don't interact with other people, maybe just sitting in silence or something like that. I had my fears, but also I had many joys in that time. So it was mixed up. Maybe because of that, they didn't realize that there was a problem. I think that I was adult in that time. Maybe I wouldn't recognize them either. I recognize it now. After many, after, now I'm 40 years old, and now people are talking about anxiety much more than in that time. That time you, you should have really, really bad uh, symptoms that anybody would care about them. Now it's quite different. Yeah. My daughter, you know, she was an anxious, anxious one. And, uh, you know, we had to, we got her some therapy and it made a, a world of difference, made a huge difference. And I think back to my childhood, I don't think that would have been on the menu. Maybe it would have in certain quarters, but I, you know, I didn't know anybody who was in therapy when I was a kid. Uh, but that's, that's the positive change. So, you know, it's also worth noting that you lost your mother. Like you say, you don't have any memory of it. So it's a huge sense of loss all throughout your childhood, but it happened before you were really sentient, right? You know, it happened when you were two. So, you know, like you say, she lived for you as a story that was told to you. And I have to believe that the, the scale of the loss grew as you grew. Like you must feel it, you know, you must, you must have felt it more and more as you got older. And I'm wondering how your relationship to the loss changed as you, as you aged. Um, you know, when you hit adolescence, for example, and you become a teenager, do you start to have a different relationship to your own grief and sense of, of loss? There is something else what really marked my life. It was the war. It started in Bosnia, in Sarajevo, in 1992. I was 12 years old. And I escaped from Sarajevo with my mother's parents in Serbia, in part uh, Vojvodina. Uh, in part of the, it's the western part of the country called Vojvodina because my uh, grandmother, Brana, is from that uh, from from one village near the border between Serbia and Croatia. Is that Sid? So, Sid. 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 Sorry. Yes. Yes. And we uh, we went there. Other half of my family, my father, his parents, his brother, and his sister, they all uh, stayed in Sarajevo, and they were du uh, all the time during the war in the city, and. Yeah, from one side, I uh, uh, yeah, I was growing old, getting into my teen years, and things start changes, <laughs> changing in in that way. But also, uh, the war was all around me, and I think many things just stopped. We didn't have I didn't have many time to reflect about mother, 
about uh, growing up or anything because uh, I was obsessed just with the idea to get back to home. And I think those years, while I was like a refugee in Vojvodina, in Sheet, uh, they were years of um, just uh, surviving. And I was there with them for two years. And there was one uh, peace contract. I don't know how, how can I say it in, other, in another way. And it, it happened in 1994. So Sarajevo was closed till then completely. You couldn't reach the city. So I was just dreaming uh, about coming back home. But it was impossible. But that during the summer of 1994, uh, there, there, there was one possibility to come back. And actually, I came back uh, in the war <laughs> uh, as a war prisoner. I wasn't a prisoner, of course, but that was the only way for me to get in the city. Some, that was some kind of exchange. But I never um, got that information who came out from Sarajevo. But I know that I entered and it was 16 august the day of that's my birthday huh? I, then I, I was 14 years old when when i get back to sarajevo and uh, stayed in the war one more year and then you know the day dayton happened uh, and the war was over wow so that's a that's a way to grow up i mean you're 12 years old just heading adolescence and your country gets torn apart and you have to leave your home, which that's its own trauma, uh, to say the least. Did you witness any violence in the war? Were you like firsthand witness to acts of violence? Uh, I was, uh, when I was back, it was one peaceful period, few months. And after that, uh, Sarajevo was kept bombing, uh, I was also lucky because they, it was still a war. You, there is, there was very dangerous in that time, but happily in my family, uh, nobody died, nobody was killed. But I witnesses, uh, I witnessed um, the day when uh, our neighbor neighbors, two houses from ours, they were killed by. Uh, one bomb. Yeah. Their house got bombed. Yes. And you saw this? Uh, actually, I didn't saw it, but I heard, uh, you know, the voices and uh, everything was crazy. Actually, at the beginning, we didn't know what really happened. We just uh, hear it, and then we knew something happened, but didn't realize. If somebody was killed, and very maybe in ten or fifteen minutes, uh, we realized that our two neighbors they were killed both. Yeah. Oh. But I didn't saw that act. I hear he heard it. But the point remains that with the war continuing to unfold, no one in your family died. 
but a lot of that is luck. I, yeah, yeah, it was really we were really lucky, especially in that part of Sarajevo. Uh, they mostly Muslims live there. It's an uh, old town, and it's still uh, mostly uh, some kind of Muslim part of the city, and it was really hard bombing during the war and many many families they lost one or even more members but happily in my family we all survived the war yes okay but you still had to live day to day in this uncertainty about whether or not a bomb was going to fall in your house yes but yeah it, it all that fear came after the war because i was the kid Somehow in that I thought that I'm immortal. I didn't really think of all danger things that can happen to me. But when I heard that uh, uh, that bomb and the day when my neighbors died, that was the first time when I was really scared. That then I realized that we are all in danger. But it was really at at the end of the war. It was like fall in 1995, and soon Dayton uh, was um, signed, and the war stopped. You're, you're referring so to the you're, like, you're referring to the Dayton Peace Accords in, yes, yes. that were signed in Dayton, yeah, we Ohio. Call it just Dayton, yeah, Dayton Peace Accords. Just yeah. for people listening, yeah. Yes, yes. But uh, yeah, when I get back, it was I was the happiest person. Because I, I, I got back home. That was my goal all the time. I really didn't realize uh, what the war was. For me, I was at home. Uh, I was also again with my friends. We were, we were gathering during the war. Because, uh, you know, in Sarajevo, it lasted for four years. It wasn't like that, that people were all the time in some kind of shelters they somehow learned how to live their lives during the war. And it was like you lived in, okay, it's war, the, the city is closed, uh, they, there is not enough food or everything, but people were trying really to, to live normally, just to survive. Uh, theaters were, were open, uh, some uh, bars were also open, so... It was a long period, four years. So people somehow learned to live in that circumstances. Well, it reminds me of COVID, uh, you know, in a way, just the, you know, you go through the initial shock and fear. And yes. then as the thing continues on, eventually you just start living your life. Like, what are you going to do? You, you can't, yes. yeah. you can't just hide in your room for four years, like you say. Yes, that, that was the case here. Because, yeah, otherwise people, they, they were all be mad. Nobody could uh, be under that kind of pressure, like that first shock for four years. So they had to find a way to live in these circumstances, and that was like that. But all the fears came after. When? How much? How long after? Uh, so... Uh, the war stopped in 1995. It was the first year of my high school. And then, uh, again, 
I found new friends and the war stopped. Uh, everything was open. We didn't have restrictions of electricity anymore. Uh, food came in the town. So these very few years were really optimistic. And we were all somehow happy to be alive. Well, sure. And, uh, yeah, it was really maybe four or five five years. It was really good for me from that point. But from another point, in that time, my grand grandparents start dying. Oh. First, Grandpa Duboro, then uh, Grandma Safeta, then Grandma Brana, and finally Nejat. So yeah. It was, you know, there, there are many things. In one way, things started to go in very good direction, but something else happened. And, but, yeah, while all the time, even when they were dying, okay, I was in my, maybe I had, 18 the 19 years i was some i was how to say it discovering the world so i try not to be affected too much by the fact they are dying like okay they are old they have to die we all we, we all will, at the end everybody will die so i was kept going and everything for me was normal like it that process was also something that's normal and it lasted till I uh, turned 22 years old and then I had this some kind of breakdown sure and when everything yeah that then I started with I got panic attacks many fears that I, now also from a distance I could said that all emotions I stopped were, I don't know from what, what part of me, but they overwhelmed me and I was not able to cope with all this. All this. So, yeah, uh, I there was no other way. I went to a psychiatry clinic and I told them I think something is not very good with me. Can you help me? And then we were talking about my life, whatever, everything, what happened. And they, yeah, they put me on medications. And then I start this process of healing. But now also when I'm thinking from this moment, it happened when I was 22. My mother died when she was 22. Ah, there you so go. So there also this, yeah, maybe, okay, I did never, I, I don't remember her. I don't have any memory of her, but I somehow knew that she died when she was 22. Maybe for me it was also the important year. Maybe I didn't know how to keep living after after that year. So, yeah. I think it makes I think it makes a lot of sense for a child who has lost a parent to. For, for for the year, you know, for that age, the age, the parents' age of death to weigh heavily, and to 
you know, when you, when you yourself get to that age to have it mean something and then to, to get past that age. I mean, now you say you're 40 years old, so you've outlived your mother by 18 years at this point. Um, almost a double life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was so young, but I want to ask you some more about your grandparents. You write about feeling a sense of betrayal, this sense that you've betrayed your grandparents. Like, can you talk a bit more about that? Uh, okay, then I need uh, to get back to this uh, situation of the war and what really happened. So during the 80s, we all lived in one state, former Yugoslavia, and there were many uh, ethnical identities there. There were Muslims, Serbs, Croats, and in 80s, actually, I didn't, I wasn't a... Um, aware of that differences. I just before the war started I realized that my my father parents and my father they are Muslims and my mother was uh, uh, S- Serbian and her parents they were Serbs and uh, yeah it turned out that I'm from a mixed family uh, between two ethnicities who start because the war started over the issue of different ethnical groups. And, uh, yeah, uh, after the break, the broke of Yugoslavia, my family also broke. I told you I went with my mother parents in Serbia and left my father and his parents in um, Sarajevo. They were all... uh, uh, in that time when the war started, they, they and my mother, parents, and my father, they really wanted me out of the city. So my mother, parents, they didn't somehow drag me without uh, asking them. But after, during the war and after the war, it just happened that circumstances changed. Like one family stayed after the war on two different sides. And we were not in the same city anymore. It was not one house as it used to be somehow, metaphorically one house. So I was always, when the war started, I was always on one side, leaving another. So at the beginning of the war, I went with my mother parents in Serbia. I left my father and his parents. When I got back in Sarajevo during the war, I needed to leave my mother parents to live with my father and his parents. So uh, from that point, I was always uh, somehow, but choosing the sides. I tried to be equally on each side, but it was really hard. Right, right. Uh, because many years after the war, we are now it's 2021, we still have this problem because the war just stopped. But many issues uh, are not um, Resol- settled, resolved. Still, yeah. Resolved. Yes, it's still big issue politically, and uh, I, I told when when what war was happened at that time, it, we still somehow live in like the war is still present. It was never. We didn't never go uh, leave, leave it in the past, something like that. 
they didn't left it in the past, yeah. I feel like it takes a long time for something like that to work its way into the past, you know? Like the yeah. effect the effects linger for a long, long time when a country has fallen into a, a civil war like that. I want to ask you, uh, like you, you write really beautifully about your grandfather. I, I'm forgetting which grandfather it was that loved Tito, the former uh-huh, dictator. My mother, yeah, my mother, mother's father. There's just a great story about Tito visiting your grandfather's, I believe it was his elementary school, right? His, yes. Like I feel I you know it's funny I, I'm I'm jokingly going to refer to this I probably have already done so in the monologue to this episode um I have done now a trilogy of interviews with writers from the former Yugoslavia this year you're you're the third person I've spoken with the third author just this year and it's given me a lot of insight and perspective on what it was like there because the war touched everyone and Tito looms large in the imagination of people from the former Yugoslavia, even if they, you know, even if you don't have any personal experience, a grandparent often will, you know, those stories carry over from one generation to the next. He was quite, what's the word for it? I guess a memorable figure. And he dominated, it seems like the national imagination for a long time. Yes. Tito died in 1980, the years I was born. But uh, yeah, I, I need to say because yeah, in my family they are mixed ethnicity, but they ra- they try to raise me in the spirit of that country. So I knew that all of us we were Yugoslavians. Uh, they yeah, my mother she existed through through the stories, and I knew about about her that she was a member of the party. She was dedicated to to a state. To Tito, to Yugoslavia, and like Yugoslavia is my is our next mother. Okay, if mother died, it's still Yugoslavia, and they really raised me in that spirit. Especially grandfather Boro, because he lost his parents in Second World War, and uh, the state uh, raised him. So for him, that uh, that identity and the state was like a family, and it was really hard for him. Was the hardest uh, that uh, breakdown of Yugoslavia, and he somehow he he couldn't bear all of that, and he was the first one who died. He also had ha- very suddenly heart attack. He was we didn't know that he has some. Uh, problems with heart on pressure or something he was he he looked like very healthy man and it was all again it was happened during the night he just got a very strong heart attack and uh, he died yeah wow so you say he was raised by the state his parents died in world war Two. how old was he when they died he was uh he was four years old oh <sighs> And how were they killed? Older than than me. <laughs> yeah, how were they killed? Uh, it was uh, the Nazis. They came to the village and killed all the adults. And uh, I don't know if his um, aunt she survived, and I think that she, she bring all the kids with her. I, actually, I don't know in details the story of the 
surviving that tragedy, but uh, he maybe he didn't want to talk about it sure. uh, so much. But he was all the time. I remember he he was telling me the stories uh, of his uh, growing up those years in these uh, state institutions and how he met Tito. And uh, at the end, uh, he, he turned out he was uh, a police officer. Huh. <laughs> well, I'm going to, I hope, can I spoil it? I want to, I mean, I love this story of Tito showing up at your, your dad is basically in an orphanage, like a state-run orphanage that yes. is also a boarding school. No. And so he's living there and going to school there. And then one day Tito shows up to pay visit. Uh, it's like a charity visit. I would, I guess you would characterize it as. And Tito clears all the teachers out of the room and then does what? Why don't I let you tell it? What does he do? He yeah. takes, tells the teachers to leave. He is there like the, the head of state, the dictator is there with all these kids. And what does he do? Uh, yes. It in the, in those years uh, teachers were really <laughs> hard <laughs> and uh, it was uh, it, it wasn't exceptional it was like regular uh, practice that they uh, beat the children if they don't uh, if, if they are not disciplined or if they don't know what they should know <laughs> or something like that so when he came and he just tell the teachers, all of them, to go out, and he stayed alone with the kids. And then he asked them uh, about, yeah, uh, <laughs> who are those who are beating them up. So at first they were all, no, I think that they were in fear. They, they didn't speak uh, immediately, but after some time there was one kid who first stepped out and said, that teacher, he beat me up. And so they started uh, to give him the names. And uh, after that day, I don't know actually what happened to, to them, but they didn't show up at work anytime after. <laughs> so, the yeah, the head of state basically comes in. Yes, clears and the he room. also asked them, what, what do you need? Do you need anything? So they asked for the balls, for the, some toys. And they, uh, he, so many times he told me, so many times he told me that story when the truck came with all the, uh, with all the toys. It was <laughs> so big <laughs> for him. And he was really a small child in that period. Maybe he was nine or ten years old, yeah. That'll make an impression on a kid, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a way to win. It, like, if you're trying to secure the future political support of a child, getting rid of the yeah. mean teachers and giving them lots of toys is a good strategy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And my grandfather, he, I think, you know, we all have in our lives many heroes and people who we think that they are really good uh, I think I don't know a better person that uh, that was that that is like uh, uh, grandfather Boro. He was really special man, and he was dedicated to Tito and the state till the end. Till the end, and he must till have been end. he must have been particularly um, 
moved by your plight as a guy who lost his parents at a young age to see his granddaughter then lose her mother at a young age. You guys must have had a kind of connection in that way. Yes, he was really so kind to me. Uh, I think that he he was uh, okay, or or full of them were really dedicated to me. They were like I was really spoiled child also because uh, they really cared cared for me so much and they tried to fulfill every of my desires my wishes so uh, I was really the center I after that I became a center of their lives but now also when I'm thinking about them I think that uh, grandpa Boro uh, he was uh, he played with me more than the others he was like my uh, somehow I didn't think it think about it before but now when I think uh, he played with me like we are the same age maybe somehow he he was also trying or memorizing his uh, childhood in that time but many many times we played the uh, outside or in the house yes hmm. so i want to get back to the breakdown that you suffered when you were 22 when all of this loss and all of this trauma um kind of reached its um what's the word you sort of hit the wall you know you reached the same age that your mother was when she passed away and everything that had been uh, repressed came to the surface and you started to feel it, I guess, for the first time. And, uh, there's a, there's a great story in the book that is epistolary. It's a letter that you have written to the poet Elizabeth Bishop from a psychiatric hospital. And there, there are a couple of lines. I'm going to try to repeat, you know, re I'm going to try to repeat them verbatim, but I'll probably mess it up a little bit, but they struck me. And the first one is that you talked about how, when the houses died, uh, the houses that you lived in growing up with your grandparents, because your grandparents died and then the houses died and the times that we lived in died as well. There was that feeling that was very painful for you was this i think that maybe crystallized the sense of loss you know the houses themselves uh, losing those familiar physical spaces that tied you to all of the people in your family that you had lost um, that had a huge impact and then at the end of the piece you say something to the effect of like have i mastered the art of losing that i found so touching because it was like i don't know it, it uh it it's a it's a very uh, appropriate question to ask. Like, how much I, I can relate to it too. Like, how much do we have to lose before we've gotten our lesson? You know, in, in like in what it means to be a human being and to have to suffer loss. It can a lot of times, especially when you've gone through a lot of loss, it can feel like okay, I, I get the point. You know, like please stop. Um, so, just can you talk about the time, like the breakdown, a little bit more, like? how it came on and then what it, you know how much time you spent in this hospital and what you went through there uh, 
so it happened when I was 22. I was uh, studying philosophy in that time. I think I was on a third or fourth year of my stu- studies. And uh, it in that moment, I felt like it came from nowhere. I didn't know what hap- what is happening to me with all these panic attack, uh, uh, attacks. I in the at the beginning I was I wasn't sure what is it when I first uh, experienced the panic uh, panic attacks. I didn't know was it the heart or it's uh, am I losing my mind? Am I dying? What what is happening? I was so in sh- so much in shock. And maybe I kept it, it in secret for a few months because I wasn't clear about what is happening to me. And the things were just worse and worse. Uh, panic attacks, fears, uh, nightmares, um, uh, how to say it? Uh, uh, I I started with this um, uh, obsessed uh, thinking about uh, many things, and uh, after a few months, I realized that I cannot do it anymore. That I'm at the edge of my <laughs> strength, and that I need to do something. And first thing I remember that night, I went to my aunt, my father's sister, and I told her, look, I, I'm i really not okay. And she, uh, when I finally speaked, speak uh, about it, uh, then all the others were in shock because I was somebody who was, uh, from, when you look from... Uh, distance or from outside is really like very stable person, very rational person, person who don't uh, have or make any troubles. So it was really, then they were in shock and they were frightened. And the yeah, I told her, and then I told her, will you go with me? I need to see a doctor. And then in in maybe two weeks, uh, uh, somehow I got to the hospital, and when I talked to, to the doctor, psychiatrist, uh, she told me that was the good thing, that I recognized some symptoms, that I came, and then they kept me uh, for three months. I started with the therapy. Three months with, on this uh, therapy. And after that, yeah, they needed three or four months to stabilize me. Again, because uh, uh, I, I had many fears. Like I was uh, afraid to go outside, especially alone. I was afraid to stay alone in the room without anybody, so many, many fears. So they, they need to put me on uh, medication, medications and uh, we needed three months at least to 
you know, somehow to stabilize me, to not have those very strong heart attacks, fears, or that's how I remember it now. That we, that I needed a few months to, to, to stop those symptoms and to start very slowly to recover. At the end, it took me two years to recover. Hmm. Completely, because at the first year uh, I I didn't go outside uh, my house alone. I don't remember that I went even one one time outside alone. And yeah, but always there is something good in things. That was the period when I start writing. I was going to say, was, you, you, yeah. wrote, you wrote this letter to Elizabeth Bishop. I imagine that while you were in the hospital, you were reading? Uh, actually, I was, uh, the, at the end, uh, I, uh, I went, uh, it was like that, that I needed to go to hospital every day and stay sometimes um, and then go back home. Ah. They thought that that is the best process for me and uh, always somebody needed to pick me up and go with me and because I, I was afraid to go by myself so I was not completely um, uh, you know they, they they thought in that time that this kind of treatment if I if I were uh, completely cut of the my house family friends that it wouldn't make any better that it would maybe uh, getting worse. So it was treatment that I was something like half time uh, in the hospital and half at home. So yeah, I, I, at the first month or two, I really couldn't read at all. But as it gets started better little by little, I start to read a lot and start to write. Okay. And when you talk about being scared to be alone or to go out of the house alone, what what were you scared of? Were there like specific fears? Uh, that's the that's the good question because now I'm uh, trying to help other people who have the same problems or similar problems, and there is also uh, that is something that I think uh, we all have that very very big and strong fear but you don't know where it came from and what is it you think there is some kind of feeling you think that something really terrible is going to happen but you don't know what and that's the part of <laughs> because you cannot specify what is happening and what what can happen it's just that huge, huge uh, fear that something really terrible is going to happen, but you don't know what. It's almost worse when you don't have yeah. a specific thing yeah, to be afraid of. Yeah, you don't know what, yes. It's, yes. Just, it's just big fear and unspecified, and that, that makes it harder to, like, you know, makes it harder to see or to certainly to uh, define and understand. And so I can, I can, I can, imagine how that would be destabilizing and certainly your understanding of it 
in retrospect, has to have you thinking about the grief and traumas of your childhood. I mean, the loss of your mom, the war, all that comes with the war, the, you know, the losing your home then, and then the deaths of your grandparents. I mean, all of it cumulatively just built up and finally manifested in this way. Correct? Yes. And it was the first time when I actually realized, I, I didn't realize it by myself, but doctors, they helped me in that. Uh, till the moment I went to a psychiatry clinic, I actually didn't think that something really bad happened to me. Because, you know, you're always in that mood of uh, surviving. Whatever is happening, you need to normalize those thing, things because, uh, yeah, it would, it would be impossible for you to live normally. Because, okay, uh, I lost my mother, I'm not the only one. Okay, my grandparents died, okay, they were old people, old people are dying. War happened, okay, <laughs> almost every 50 years in our region, war happened. So you rationalize and normalize all the things. But it doesn't go in that way all the time. There is that moment when it, it just hit you. Yeah. I don't know, maybe uh, we are all different. Maybe somebody else wouldn't uh, go through everything, especially with the psychiatry clinic that, that I had. But in my case, it was like that. It was good till I was 22, and then it suddenly crushed me hmm. altogether. Well, at least you got it all out of the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to talk to you because there are some sweet moments in the book. You know, you fall in love in one of the stories and you say something about that really uh, stuck with me about how so much of what we get in life, we don't deserve. And surely that's the case for you. You know, when it comes to a lot of the bad stuff, you didn't deserve to lose your mother at age two. You didn't deserve to be a child in a war-torn country. But then the good stuff, too, that happens in your life, you don't necessarily deserve it either. And I thought that was a really poignant observation. Um, and I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about how that part of your life and that relationship played into your healing from all of this loss and trauma? It came after this uh, episode with the psychiatry clinic. Uh, yeah, that, that, now that's another story about being gay, being lesbian in, in, in 80s here. As a child, I was not aware of that. Although I told my grandmothers that I'm in love with my colleague Sanela from the school, but they were all laughing on it because it was like, no, it doesn't go that way. Uh, you know, uh, girls need to fall in love with boys and boys with girls. It only can go in that way, in that direction, not not anything else. And then the war happened, so I didn't think so much about it. And after the war, we were again surviving. So, so I, 
it turned out that I realized that I'm a lesbian when I was 20 years old. And also it became issue because in uh, with the war and after the war many things changed. People, uh, uh, religions were uh, suddenly religions came uh, so important for the people, and we know what religion says. So uh, I didn't actually know anything that was openly gay in Sarajevo in that time. I was trying to find out for some people, but they were not openly gay. People just were saying about them that they are gay. So it also it happened for me in that time that uh, uh, I was concerned and I was really worried that I will somehow, it is part of my madness, but that somehow the, the life will make me to live uh, in a way I don't want to live. Because when I realized it was at the first moment, in the first moment, it was relief for me. But in another, I was, I felt like I'm alone. I don't know other people who are gay. Uh, all people around me, they were in, 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 you know, they were hetero or straight people. And my future in that context was worse than a war for me because i realized i was afraid that i will not be able in a, any time in the future to to find a true love that i will have to be in some relations with the man i don't want so all of that was also a part maybe maybe even a trigger for for that breakdown yeah okay and now things are different uh, it's not easy. It's not easy, but things are changing. It's now I'm openly gay. Not that I'm talking about it with you, but I'm openly gay here for in Sarajevo. Everybody knows for me. And then it turned out that it's possible. And it was also a big relief for me, but. Uh, in that time, almost 20 years ago, I really, I thought that I'm the only one. Well, I mean, that ex that helps explain it too. You had that going on when you were 22. I mean, so that just, yeah. a that adds a layer. I have to ask then, is there anything else? <laughs> like had, no, oh, that's now, yeah, completely. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, old. that's it, that's it. I can't take anymore. That's it. There is no more. Yeah, <laughs> enough. Oh my goodness. Um, so you fell in love and I just, there's just this really sweet depiction of you like feeling undeserving, you know, what if, I think you say, what if the sound and fury come back, <laughs> you know, what if the, the madness returns and your partner is just very sweet and understanding. Uh, I don't know. Are you still together? I don't know if this relationship yes. you are. So this is a, yes. a long-term thing. I, I kind of imagine that it was, but I don't know. It just, it made me very happy to realize that you had found love and that you had a partner who kind of understood all that you had been through and accepted it. And I don't know, I, I felt like you deserved that. So I'm very pleased that this is still continuing and that <laughs> that happened for you. 
Um, the other moment of kind of like, it, it's a little bit less happy, but it, it felt like a moment of understanding and relief in a way is um, the story that has to do with the cemetery where your mother is buried. And is it called Bare? Like, how do you pronounce the name of this? Bare. Yeah. Bare. Okay. So this is a big urban cemetery in Sarajevo. Yes. And you go there and to visit your mother's grave and to plant flowers and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you, you remember, you're remembering a man whom you used to see at the cemetery pretty much every time you went when you were there as a child, correct? Yes. So who is this man? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, it, all of that is in last story called Return to the Stars. Uh, symbolically, it's the, the, the title actually uh, speaks about uh, cemetery and this atheistic part of cemetery, which is... Uh, Wait, the, the, athe- the atheistic part? Atheistic part, yes. Okay. Uh, because my mother, she, she was buried in, the, in that part. And today, nobody else wants to go <laughs> to be buried as atheists. You know, everybody, yeah, things changed, people change, and and for me, it was good, po- good place to, to to close that story. And uh, because I, during my childhood, I was frequently there with my mother, parents, sometimes with my father parents but mostly with my mother parents and uh, we were so often there so we knew and many other stories about other people who died how they especially if they they were young what happened to to i know one guy he he i don't there was some car accident uh, another it was it was child almost a baby and for that man, he lost uh, his family in car accident, his wife and two children. And he, he was more often at the cemetery than anybody else. He, he was coming every day after the work and stayed sitting there till the night. And uh, I remember him very clear from that period. But, you know, then war happened, migrations happened. I didn't even know was he still alive or maybe if he's alive, is he still in Sarajevo? But I didn't know what happened to him. And, uh, yeah, that's in the last story. I see him coming back and he's still that man who who is uh, waiting for his own death because he was the only one who survive all those years. That is so sad and understandable. You lose your wife and two children. I mean, who knows how you're going to respond, you know? Like, going to visit their graves after work every day makes emotional sense. But the question that the story raises and the question that I think your book raises has to do with how to go on living after trauma. That's where it left me anyway. And I think about 
loss that I've experienced or loss that I've witnessed, you know, people experience, especially the people who are, are impacted the most, you know, who are closest to the person who died. And I've seen people respond to death through my life in different ways. Some people process it in a healthier way than others. I think, you know, might, that might be a way to put it. Like, I feel like some people move on with their lives and live more than others. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that, uh, that's what I found myself thinking about after I finished your book is like, what is the, what is the healthiest response to serious loss and trauma? And what do the dead want from us? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what what would they wish for us? Do they want us to visit their graves every day? Or do they want us to get on with it and go meet somebody or go out dancing? You know, something. Do you know what I'm getting at? Yes. But yeah, definitely there is no universal answer to that. Every person is different and everybody in his or her own way uh going through life in my case uh i think that i survived all of that because of my age uh the first trauma happened as we told when i was still not aware of what was happening I, I, losing mother and i was child when the war started i was still a child when my grandparents started to pass away and somehow I think that I had that perceptions that probably there is still in life but I know people who didn't suffer from all those traumas in 80s people who were uh, adults maybe in, in the late 20s uh, when the war started, they still live in that time. It happened for them in another age. So maybe it's also uh, one part of of a question. At the end, I don't know. I didn't realize or I didn't make a decision, okay, from tomorrow I will keep going with my life. Life is also a miracle. It's just... <laughs> doesn't stop like that so many things we can pass through and if we survive if we stay stay alive the life is going on so might as well make the best of it yeah i think too it's funny you you think that as you get older and you get a little wiser hopefully that you're going to have the equipment to better deal with inevitable loss and trauma that comes with any human life, especially as you age. But there's the old joke, you know, the, like somebody was, I was reading something about somebody who had lost a parent in their childhood. And the joke was like all the worst things that ever happened to me happened to me when I was a kid and I could handle it. <laughs> um, it's funny how that there's some truth in that. I mean, you know, like there's a resilience to children that maybe, you know, some of us anyway, as we get older, lose. We lose some of that resilience or it, it hits us harder as we get older. You would think it would be the opposite, but... Yes, but... It's... Sometimes kids 
kids have uh, whatever wisdom and resilience you need to be able to move through these things. Or it happens to you when you're a kid and you're in the middle of being a kid and you process it in whatever way you process it. And then you have fun and then you turn 22 and start having panic attacks, <laughs> you know, though so it's a, it's a bag of, you know, it's a, what is it? A mixed bag, I guess is what I would say. And you've rendered your experiences really beautifully. I like how you're working in these kind of small micro stories because it feels true to life. It feels true to how we remember things. Um, we don't remember things in a long linear narrative. We remember things in flashes, it seems like. But the accumulated power of these these little stories, uh, it's like a mosaic, you know? It, it, it made me feel like I got a real like whole sense of your youth and also a little bit about your adulthood, but really where you come from and what happened to you when you were young. And it also kind of feels like you yourself in the process of writing, were kind of trying to solve that mystery too, you know, trying to kind of piece yourself together, which I relate to. And I guess like where I, where I would end it is by asking you if you feel like you've gotten it out of your system, like in writing this book, did you, resolve questions that you might have had did was it a healing experience for you to write this stuff and to put it down do you feel like there's more to to investigate or do you feel like you're done with your past i'm not sure that i'm still done because there are other things from that period the 80s and my childhood uh, that are still interested interested me and uh, we'll see i'm not sure will i wor will i write about it but it's still in my mind but about those traumas i mentioned and about what happened to my family i think that was one kind of a healing process but it was the final phase i think i was not able I told you uh, when it all happened, in, when I was 22, I start to write. But in that period, I, <laughs> I was written about completely different things. I was not able to write about my own experience. The years needed to pass. So uh, I think that maybe that book is the final phase of the healing of those traumas I'm writing about. So yeah, I think that would be an answer. Yeah. It was a healing. That makes sense though. I, I've experienced that. Like you, you go through something, you're an artistic person, something traumatic happens to you or something big and difficult happens to you. The instinct or the reflex, at least for me, is to write about it. But yet you find that you can't do a proper job of it oftentimes until a lot of time has passed and you've gotten perspective and I've been through that, you know, you think you're going to write something really great <laughs> in the heat of the moment. And it takes a, it takes a while and kudos to you. I imagine it was probably a long process trying to get it down. Congratulations for, for doing it and for sharing these stories because I think there are a lot of people who go through similar things 
who either can't do it or don't have the the time to do it or whatever. And a, the, a book like this is a service to people like that in particular. So congratulations. Thank you. All right, there we go. That is Leila Kalamuich and her new novel and stories is called Call Me Esteban, available now from Sandorf Passage. For more information on the book, go to sandorfpassage.org. You can also follow Sandorf Passage on Twitter at Sandorf P. Sandorf Passage publishes writing inspired by both conflict zones and the dangers of complacency. Again, that was Leila Kalamuich talking with me about her excellent new book, Call Me Esteban. Go get your copy right now. The Other People podcast is offered freely. If you like the show, support the show. Tip your server at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. For as little as $1 a month, you can do that. Just throw a dollar in the hat every month or more over at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, the email address for this show is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. If you pre-order a copy of my novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, and you send me a screenshot of proof of purchase, I will send you a note and a other people sticker in the mail. You can email the proof of purchase or you can DM it on Twitter at otherppl or on the show's Instagram feed at otherppl.podcast The Other People Podcast is on YouTube. Did you know that? The entire archive is available on YouTube. Check it out. Go search for the show by name, Other PPL, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. This show also has its own official app. It's a great app. It's free. Go get the app wherever apps are available. All right. I hope you're okay. Happy Sunday. We're into the new year. It's got to be a good one, right? It's got to be better than recent years. Right? (laughs) 